Hello and welcome to Paddock Chat, a West Midlands group podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. Each episode, we delve into topics on the farming horizon and help you in the search for the answers needed to confidently navigate the future ahead. So let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I sit down with Ben Picton, who is the Senior Strategist for Global Economics and Markets in the Australian-New Zealand region for Rabobank to discuss everything from rising interest rates to social licence to the effect of the pandemic on the global economy. So it's time to step off the farm and into the world of economics and settle in for an episode of Paddock Chat. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. And this podcast was recorded in May of 2023. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Awesome. So let's get started. So my first question for you is, how did you arrive in your current position? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a, I guess, a winding story for me. I started at Rabobank about eight years ago in the financial markets team, basically as a uh, what we call a sales trader for financial derivatives. So managing risks for primarily our farming clients on interest rate derivatives, commodities, and also uh, foreign exchange. So I was doing that for a number of years, and then I moved into a, a trading role, trading currencies particularly, but also some exposure to commodities. Did that for a little while, and then I moved back to the sales desk and was dealing with our, our wholesale client base, so sort of large corporates, helping them to manage various risks in their business as a senior dealer. And I did that for about three years before just earlier this year joining the research team. So now I cover Australia and New Zealand macroeconomics and everything that that, that, that entails. So what did you want to be when you grew up then? And how has that strayed to the current time? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Going way back, I wanted to be a train robber when I was a when I was a little kid. Um, I used to see that on TV, and I thought that looked pretty good. And then I figured out that that's not really a viable job uh, or a legal job, and that most <laughs> of those movies that I was watching were were sort of based in the 1860s in America. So that was out the window. And then I had ambitions to to fly fighter jets for a little while, and I I nearly did that. I I went through the the sign-on process, got got the clean bill of health and I was about to be off to flight school in Tamworth and um, sort of something was nagging in the back of my head saying, uh, no, don't do that. Go to university and, and study business. So I did. And uh, after a few different jobs in, in the banking industry elsewhere, I wound up at Rabobank. Oh, wow. Okay. That was not what I was expecting, to be honest, Ben. A very intriguing story. Okay. So we've got quite a few questions to get through today. So I'm going to start with, can you tell us a bit about the economy? So what are things looking like for Australia and globally? It's a really interesting period of time that we, we find ourselves in now. So obviously, we've just come through uh, what we would, I think, fairly characterise as a as a global crisis with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Pandemic is, you know, arguably not over because COVID-19 is still around. But um, for the for the most part, the initial shock is, is now in the rearview mirror. This is... I guess, an 
epoch marking shift. So COVID-19 is a little bit of a line in the sand that sort of delineates this new era from previous era that sort of ran from the global financial crisis in 2008 all the way through to about 2020. So if we think about that period from 2008 to 2020, the problem that the world had was uh, very low growth, low inflation, a lot of debt. Uh, Central banks were actually trying to encourage inflation in the economy. So they were reducing interest rates. Remember that? Governments were spending a lot of money to try to pump up inflation and pump up economic activity. And then COVID-19 hit. We had uh, what I would describe as almost a a policy-induced global recession because governments shut everything down. So we shut down factories. We we shut down international trade, closed international borders. uh, We closed state borders. So you know, we had this sort of policy-induced shutdown. And, and what that really meant was that the supply side of the economy was forcibly closed down. And while that was happening, uh, governments and central banks, they thought that they had to support households and firms by providing them with a lot of cash. So uh, the demand side of the economy didn't really skip a beat too much. So uh, some would even argue that uh, demand increased during the COVID period. So we now have this uh, supply-demand imbalance, which has uh, led to higher inflation and and the need to increase interest rates. Well, that kind of ties in uh, to the next question because I was going to talk about supply chain issues. Obviously, everyone knows that they are around at the moment. What do you see happening to those in the next few years? Yeah, so supply chains are are really important to look at for a number of reasons. So supply chains are, are the genesis of the inflation that we're experiencing at the moment. So when we when we closed down those national borders, when those factories in China were sort of closed down because of uh, the spread of COVID, and when all of the ports around the world sort of locked up, you know, we had shipping containers sort of getting stuck in the port of Los Angeles when they they had to be in Shanghai. So all of these supply chain issues uh, are starting to sort of moderate now. We're seeing that reflected in inflation for goods, whereas over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, it it was quite difficult to buy things like cars or machinery. And and if you did, you had to wait a long time to get it because these supply chains were broken effectively. What we're starting to see is that uh, some of those supply chain uh, resolutions are occurring where where things are not back to normal, but better than what they were maybe six or 12 months ago. So that's that's important for a number of reasons. One, uh, it means that access to, I guess, manufactured goods is, is improving. Uh, and it also means that the inflationary pressure through the, uh, the goods side of the economy is starting to dissipate a little bit. Having said that, you're dead right that there's plenty of challenges going forward because, as I sort of alluded to after the first question, COVID-19 is is not just a one-off shock. We think it marks like an epochal shift and we will see supply chain pressures into the future. And those pressures come from some long-run themes. So competition between great powers, particularly China and the United States, and that throws up new trade frictions. We see uh, supply chain pressures from climate change. So not just the effect of climate change on productivity, but also the cost of abating climate change or the cost of complying with climate regulation. And we also see supply side pressures from demographics. So the world population is aging. There's going to be fewer people producing goods and services relative to the number of people consuming goods and services. And uh, that is inflationary in the future. So um, those pressures will continue. So you've spoken a couple of times now about this big shift that's happened over the last couple of years with COVID and other factors coming in. 
what sort of changes do you think that will bring coming into the future? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I, I guess when we're thinking about this, it's it's important to sort of think about where we've come from in the past and, and how the Australian economy has, has evolved over time. So if we go back and we look at what the economy has looked like previously, so back in the 1950s and 60s, as we came out of the, the Second World War, Australia was characterised by fairly strong agricultural industry and very strong manufacturing industry. And they were sort of the sources of most jobs and, and exports here in Australia. Mining was was picking up as well. If we sort of roll forward to the early 1980s, everything sort of changed in Australia. We, we deregulated. We, we entered the, the period of neoliberalism, for, for lack of a better word. So there were a lot of reforms to open Australia up to the rest of the world, uh, encourage competition, reduce trade frictions, reduce tariff barriers. And what we really saw is that the Australian economy changed in a big way. So we went from having a a quite large manufacturing base with lots of middle-class blue-collar jobs to a much more services-based economy. So we, we saw the disappearance of, of some of those, uh, I guess, middle-class blue-collar industries. So uh, a, a lot of manufacturing sort of started to wither in Australia. If we think about heavy manufacturing like steel production, uh, it's much lower than what it used to be. Shipbuilding doesn't really exist in Australia in a big way anymore. But we saw the growth in services industries, white-collar services jobs. So financial services, uh, the superannuation sector uh, kind of cropped up out of nowhere. Professional services like consulting, legal and accounting uh, grew in a big way. So the economy really changed. And we've been in this sort of, uh, I guess, neoliberal period since the early 1980s. And when we look at COVID hitting in 2020, I, I think that that actually marks a bit of a shift because we're starting to see trade barriers going back up. We're starting to see deglobalization. So we, we no longer have one single world market where uh, trade is liberalising from here into the future. Uh, That's not the case anymore. We're seeing countries starting to split up into little trade blocks. And I would suggest that a lot of countries around the world, they figured out during COVID that they actually still need to be able to make stuff. Because uh, remember when we couldn't get masks and we couldn't get respirators and we couldn't get medicines because they were all made somewhere else and those countries prioritise their own citizens. So every every government got a bit of a wake-up call and realised that there's certain things that, that we need to manufacture locally. And I think that we're going to see a, a growing trend going forward where countries are increasingly prioritising reshoring manufacturing into their own borders. It's interesting that you say that because I definitely feel that push coming. But like we've talked about before, labour shortages are an issue. Well, our producers talk about it. We hear it all across Australia. So it's interesting. We're going to look for more skilled workers, but we've already got a shortage. So it's an interesting spot that we found ourselves in. Yeah, that's right. So it's definitely a pressure at the moment. So we, we have the lowest unemployment rate right now since the early 1970s. So you have to go back to Gough Whitlam days to find an unemployment rate lower than what it is today. And other indicators of the labour market are also extremely strong. So the underemployment rate, which is people who have a job but want to work more hours, that's the lowest that it's been since 1983 when we first deregulated the economy. The labour force participation rate, which is the total number of people in work or looking for work divided by the population of people in the working age group. That's the the highest it's ever been. And that's largely been driven by women entering the workforce and also uh, 
older people working for longer. There's a lot of sort of structural changes in, in our economy. The labour market's extremely tight. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners would be familiar with how difficult it is to find workers and uh, and how much you have to pay to get them. And uh, maybe it's difficult to find them with the right skills. So I guess there's a, a few levers that government and government agencies can pull to try to address that problem. One of them is immigration. And uh, there's been a lot of media recently about uh, Australia running very, very high immigration rates into the future. So over the next uh, four or five years, we'll have one and a half million new immigrants. That's a lot. So that's part of the plan to introduce a little bit of slack into the labour market. But the other part is interest rates. The uh, Reserve Bank is increasing interest rates to, uh, it's not a nice thing to say, but uh, actually to try to increase the unemployment rate. They're trying to put some of those unproductive firms that are locking up labour in unproductive uses, putting them out of business so that that labour supply can be freed up uh, to go into more productive uses in the economy. So as you've just kind of touched on, interest rates are a big topic of conversation at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit more about why they are going up and what people predict for the future? Yeah, so uh, interest rates are a huge issue at the moment. We get asked about this all the time. It's sort of the, the hot topic in, in the market at the moment. And everybody wants to know about it because anyone who has debt is affected by rising interest rates. So the reason why interest rates are going up really is to try to get those inflation pressures under control. So the Reserve Bank has one job. That's to get inflation within 2 to 3% per annum. And they really have one major tool to do it, and that is moving interest rates up and down. So inflation today is running at 7% or 6.6% or if you look at the, the core reading. That is way too high. So more than double the, the top end of the inflation target. So the Reserve Bank is increasing interest rates to, to try to rebalance supply and demand in the economy to manipulate price growth back into that target range. Now, in terms of what that means in in practical terms, uh, they're, they're trying to take demand out of the economy by taking disposable income away from households. A tricky balance. It is. I, I, I don't envy them the, the job that they have. Um, you know, being a central banker is, is hard at the best of times and, and particularly right now and nobody likes them, so hard. Mm. So another topic of interest at the moment for a lot of producers is live export. What effect will the banning of live export have on Australia? Yeah, that's a really good question. It will definitely have an impact. I would suggest that the impacts are, are more likely to be localised. So it's a huge issue for the, the producers and the regions that are engaged in the live export trade. But in, in terms of the overall aggregate effects on the Australian economy, it's likely to be fairly small. So we, we don't think there's risk of recession or anything like that from the, the shutdown of live export. What it probably will mean is that those producers who are engaged in the live export trade are, are going to have to find new cash flows, new uh, new product streams and find ways to diversify into into other other businesses. So huge effect on those producers and you know it's a, a difficult time, but probably not a, a massive effect on the on the national economy. And the topic of consumer trends and the impact it's having on the market is something uh, you've touched on previously. Could you elaborate on this for us? Yeah, so there's a lot to cover here. So I, I guess um, just in the very short term, uh, something that we're really really noticing in consumer trends is a, a bit of a trend towards downgrading or, or looking for value. And as households come under increasing pressure from rising interest rates and rising prices, they're sort of moving from those, I guess, pricier brand name goods down to some of the more uh, generic brands that you might find in supermarkets. We're finding uh, 
consumers are also downgrading from maybe some more expensive cuts of meat into some cheaper cuts or, or things like beef mince. And the supermarkets have been very vocal about that in recent times. On a longer span of things, we're, we're seeing some trends around um, preferences for uh, sustainability, preferences for uh, low carbon supply chains. And, and consumers are really starting to engage with companies and, and they want to know about the sustainability of, of their supply chain. So we're finding that uh, industries like cotton are very, very advanced with this. Uh, they track every bale. They know which inputs have gone into it all the way to the end consumer who is who is buying a garment somewhere. So some big trends that are evolving, and I would suggest that that's going to find its way into other agricultural industries as well. And that seems to be happening more overseas than Australia. I feel worried that we're probably going to be on a race to, to catch up at some stage. Uh, potentially. I, I think that um, some of the regulation around climate is certainly more advanced offshore than what it is here in Australia. That's not necessarily a bad thing because there is still, a, I guess, a, um, a situation where countries are sort of feeling their way with how all of this will work and nobody has quite got it totally nailed just yet. So this softly, softly approach maybe isn't such a bad idea, but it certainly is a developing trend. It's something that we're noticing all over the world. Um, some regions, as you say, are, are more advanced than what we are here in Australia, but it's one of those things where um, it really is coming. And uh, yeah, I would uh, suggest that that's a good idea to prepare for it. Good advice. One of the final questions I've got for you is, we've talked about a lot of issues that are circling at the moment. How do we protect our farming businesses moving forward? And what are the opportunities and how can we capitalise on them? Yeah, so I, I think the key here is really diversification. So um, diversifying income streams is is a great thing to do in any market, but particularly in this market where we're starting to see trade barriers going up between countries. So anyone who's been involved in the cotton industry or the lobster industry or uh, wine industry, they would know that markets can be shut down overnight. We've seen these tariff barriers go up between Australia and China. So this is a bit of a problem if all of your eggs are in one basket. So you want to diversify your markets as much as you reasonably can. And I would suggest that it's it's also maybe a good idea to try to move up the value chain a little bit because we are still seeing that there is a, a premiumization trend that still exists, even though a lot of consumers are, are trading down. The the premium that, uh, that some consumers are paying for, uh, I guess, a higher end product is still there. And that's a way to increase margins for, for growers. So those are two things that I would kind of point out as uh, opportunities going forward. Yeah, thank you, Ben. That was a, a great answer. My last question that I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast is what keeps you interested in agriculture? That's a very big question. Um, so I, I guess for me, I kind of fell into agriculture almost a little bit accidentally because um, I don't come from a, an ag background. My my grandfather had a small farm, but it was it was more of a hobby farm or a retirement farm rather than a you know a, a job. So I always loved getting out into rural areas and, and spending time on farm, but I don't really have a family background in it, which is maybe a little bit unusual in, in this industry. What I would say is that I think that it's one of those industries where people do it because they love it. And we haven't always been brilliant as an industry at sort of, I guess, selling the message of agriculture to people who who maybe don't have those family links already. So I, I think as an industry that farming and agriculture sort of has to come together and, and be a better advocate for itself. But for my own, I guess, interest, I love being involved in ag. I, I 
wouldn't really want to move to any other industry. And I think it's got a really bright future because we're always going to need food and fiber. The lifestyle is fantastic. And everyone who has worked in the industry basically wants to stay in it. So it's got, it's got a very good story to sell. The barriers to entry are really high. So if you if you want to become a farmer, you have to have a farm, really. So it's, that's difficult to, to achieve, um, especially with land prices rocketing up as they have over the last few years. But, you know, there's lots of ways for people to get involved in agriculture. They can do it through the banking side of things like I have, or they can get involved in sort of like labouring jobs or uh, like farm share type arrangements. There's lots of different things that people can do. Some countries are better at this than, than what we are here in Australia. In New Zealand, particularly the dairy industry is extremely good at sort of encouraging new people from outside to come into agriculture. So I think as an industry, we, we need to get better at selling ourselves but once once people are in they they never want to leave because you know who wouldn't want to hang out with animals and and be out in the country air all day and uh sort of beats sitting in in an office 24 hours a day so yeah it's got a good future i think definitely okay well thank you so much ben for coming on um you have provided us with a lot of wisdom so thank you very much my pleasure thank you for having me thanks for listening to this episode Our members are an essential part of why we do what we do. For more information, including how to become a member, visit our website where you can sign up at any time. Links can be found in the show notes. See you next time for some more paddock chat. Local knowledge from a paddock near you.